which one is in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 and verses 33 to 37. And the second one, if you want to turn there, is also James chapter 5. You might have guessed that one. Matthew chapter 5. Hear what God says. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And then James chapter 5 and the first 12 verses. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about, about it until it, re it receives the, the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. and You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So reads God's word. We have this great blessing, O God, of being together here to hear you speak. But there are a number of our folk who can't be here for various reasons. And we would ask that you would meet with them as well. By your Spirit, give them a sense of your presence. A great encouragement. Some who are not well, some who are shut in. And we just pray for them this morning, Lord. Much as they would like to be here. And we miss them. We pray for them. We pray especially for Pastor Jean and Jan Benner. As they have to be with Vi to assist there with sorting out her affairs. We pray, Lord, that you would make it possible for her to move to Kelowna, to be with them, to know the fellowship of the family. We pray for Laurie and Anita Crick as they are away for their godson's grandson's wedding. We pray that you would give them safety as they travel and bring them back to us soon. We pray for the others, some of them even with us this morning, who are battling with health. For Adelia in Cottonwoods after her fall. 
for Alison, who has this ongoing problem with her kidneys. But we would also rejoice this morning in being able to thank you for the, the healing work that you've done in Jane. And we just pray that you would continue to be with her and to deal with the, the specialists as they slowly wean her off the heart medication that she's been on. Lord, we, we acknowledge that you are the great physician and we bring these to you. The medical doctors can only go so far and even then they need your permission. They need your hand. And so we, we ask you, Lord, please, to bless these folk who need your encouragement at this time, who need a sense of peace and acceptance and to just realize that when you bring pressures to bear on folk in this way, it is simply because you want us to trust you more, to believe in you more, to spend more time with you. And then we ask, Lord, for the meeting, the members' meeting that's coming up. Lord, we long to see you move, and your name magnified in the way that you build your church. We long to see that as your people, that we would deliberately and enthusiastically be involved in the work towards the sorting out of the fellowship that you have shown us in your, in your word. We believe that, that there is something really precious in becoming part, a growing part of the bride of Christ as we await your coming. And Lord, we pray that the, the love which you have given to us may be something which is so evident amongst us that those who come from the outside are just amazed. Sometimes those of us who are on the inside are also amazed. Bless you that you love us, and we ask, Lord, that we may learn from that love to love those who are nearest and dearest as well, that we would grow in grace and love towards one another and to those who are around about us every day who don't know you. There should be a, a real pity and love for them too. Oh Lord, we pray that you pour out your spirit and bring in those who you have chosen to build into your church here. And we long to glorify your name and to be used of you in the salvation of all those that you will call through to join us as your people. We pray to you this morning that, that your word be proclaimed in our city, that it will not return to you void but accomplish your purposes. And we ask, Lord God, that your purposes today would be gracious that you would turn sinners to yourselves, that you would strengthen those who are faltering and encourage those believers who sit under ministries which are just less than what you want. We pray that your word would have its way and your spirit would work. We pray for John and the other leaders in our congregation that you would bless them and protect them so that they would be able to carry out their work of protecting and encouraging and building up each one of us building us up in the faith. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you with these things. And we look forward once again to sitting under your word and have you speak to us so that we may be changed and washed by the water of your word. And we ask that you will be with John, that he may have clarity and boldness in your spirit in the teaching of your word, that you would be uplifted and glorified and that we would go from here rejoicing again. We ask these things in the name that is the only one that is worth naming, that of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning, everybody.
and happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there, and happy future Mother's Day to all the future mothers that we have here as well. Um, just uh, reminded of, of, as Dave mentions, the importance of motherhood. There, it's, I don't know who originally said it, but they say that the, the, the hand that rocks the cradle rocks the world. And so when you think back, um, young people and, and older people alike, when you think back of the influence that your mother had in shaping your spiritual development, it's, it's really a profound, profound, profound role and really one of the most important roles that anybody can have is, is motherhood. I want to thank uh, Dave for, for leading this morning. It's really nice to actually sit there and, um, and receive and not have to, uh, to, to, be, to be leading out in that. It was just really beautiful, and I definitely picked up on the harmony. So thank you, everybody, for doing that as well. Now let's go to the Lord one more time together in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you, Lord, that you never change. You are the same yesterday and today and forever. And so, Lord, we come before you with expectancy, Lord, to hear what your word would say to us this morning in the power of your spirit. For we know that your word is life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, O God. So I pray this morning that we will feed on your word and that we will grow strong in your word. Lord, that, that your word would, would change us and cause us to grow more Christ-like. Lord, I pray that you will help us as we attend to these things that, that we will see that we bear your name. And Lord, that it is so vitally important that we magnify your name and give glory to your name in all that we say and all that we do. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Dear Abby, sick at heart wrote that she is trapped in a loveless marriage because after being divorced, she made a religious commitment that she would never leave her second husband. She said the love is long gone and that her doctor has not been able to successfully medicate her severe depression. You advised her to talk with her spiritual advisor. I am a spiritual advisor and I would like to direct my comments to that woman. I strongly feel that in a marriage made by God, two people become one. From your description of your marriage, it is clear that it was never sanctioned by God. Therefore, you are released from any pledge that you made. The Bible tells us God is present everywhere. This includes you. His spirit is within you. God is love and wants love to fill our lives. God does not want anyone to live in a situation such as you have described. There is no spiritual law that demands that you stay in your loveless marriage. Learn to forgive yourself for this mistake as Jesus forgave the woman at the well who had five husbands and the one that she was living with was not her husband. Listen to the Holy Spirit within you, and you'll be free to go your way. The Reverend Norman L. Conaway from Eustis, Florida. So what do you think of Reverend Conaway's advice? Is he correct? Is this woman free to leave because her marriage is loveless? Is her marriage a religious commitment, or is it maybe something more? 
This morning we're going to be looking at James chapter 5, verse 12, and we're going to be revisiting an issue that we actually looked at about probably about a year and a half ago when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really um, no coincidence here because James really took his, his teaching in James 5, 12 directly from Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me read the verse I'm going to be focusing on again here, James 5, 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, this passage is, is really little understood and even less adhered to in our culture. Um, some people read a passage like, like James 5.12 or Matthew 5.33-37 to and think that, that it's a prohibition against all oaths. This is something that the Quakers teach. Uh, at the other extreme is those who make oaths all the time without giving them a second thought. This is like the, the little kid who says, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And in this category, I'd also like to put those who, who really do make oaths and then look for loopholes to get out of fulfilling those oaths. And this is the position that is promoted by the so-called Reverend Conaway. An oath is a solemn promise to commit oneself to the performance of a particular duty. Now, oaths are a way of solemnizing an agreement or arrangement or a promise. The Greek verb that we translate swear is omnuo, which the Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich English, English lexicon of the New Testament, which is lovingly referred to by seminary students as BDAG, um, defines as to affirm the veracity of one's statement by invoking a transcendent entity, frequently with implied invitation of punishment if one is untruthful. So what's really happening there is, is when somebody swears an oath, they are calling down judgment by a higher entity beyond themselves. Because there's the awareness that human beings are sinful and that part of, of our sinfulness is the propensity towards dishonesty. So there's the, there's the awareness that we have to, to go beyond ourselves in order to somehow confirm what we've said. And so it wasn't just, just in the Bible, but, but throughout the, the ancient Near East, making oaths and calling down judgment from not just God, but gods, plural, the false gods, was, was part of, of making these oaths. And the, the noun that we see as oath is the word horkos, which, which the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says is primarily self-cursing. And should one not be speaking the truth, it strengthens the human word and is meant to give an assurance that what is said is true. This, is, this may be done by swearing by what is held to be valuable or sacred, usually to strengthen the statement a witness of a higher being, generally a deity, is invoked. So this is not just something that was done um, by, by Christians or those who claim to be Christians. It was not just done by, by Jews, but, but was very common in, in that world, in that culture. So when somebody swears an oath, what they're really doing is essentially they're calling down curses on themselves should they break their oath. So here in James chapter 5, verse 12, James starts out by saying, but above all brothers. 
Now the word but indicates that he's, he's actually changing direction here. He's starting a new topic. So apart from, from maybe a loose connection with, with the concept of a judge standing at the door and the danger of being judged, um, there, there's really no direct link between what he's saying here in verse 12 and the previous section or really uh, with what follows. And this is really a common practice throughout the, the New Testament epistles that, that quite often the, the apostles would, would just there at the end of their letter include a, a bunch of, of sundry commands or instructions. And really I believe that's, that's exactly what, what James is doing here. But why do you think he says above all? Why does he call particular um, importance on this issue? I mean, he's, he's just talked about rich people condemning the poor and actually even murdering the poor. Now, surely that's important. But why then here is he talking about, about false swearing as being so important? And I believe the reason goes back to really the reason why James wrote this epistle. He wrote this in order to, to lay down the tests of real faith as opposed to false faith. And one of, the key, one of the key tests that he lays down is the test of the tongue. The test of the tongue. So remember, he said back in chapter 126, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then in 2.6, he says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. And then in chapter 3, that, that really, just about that whole chapter um, is, about, is about the tongue. Um, and then he says in 4.16, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So the tongue is one of the main ways in which true faith is revealed, and it's also one of the main ways in which false faith is revealed. Because what we say reveals what is going on in our hearts. That's what Jesus said when he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now in this particular case here in verse 12, there's, there's hope for these people that he's writing to because he calls them brothers. There's an, an optimistic um, sense in that because he, he's saying, well, and here it's brothers and sisters, but he is, he is um, assuming that these people here specifically in this verse are actually Christians. But he says that there is a danger. There is a danger, and the danger is of falling under condemnation. There at the end of the verse. And really, this is because the way that we view our oaths really reflects what we think of God. The way that we view oaths reveals what we think of God. I know one of the, the things that really just so bothers me in the movies is, is when people take the name of the Lord in vain. Especially when they use the name of Jesus as a curse word. And really what they're doing when they do that is they're, they are nailing their colors to the wall and they're saying, this is what we think of your Jesus. This is what we think of you, Jesus. That we are going to relegate your name to something filthy. That we're going to, to curse, as it were, your name. 
And so when people do that, they're revealing that their heart is opposed to God. And the same thing happens, when, especially when people make an oath in the name of the Lord and then break that oath. But I argue that, that, that it's likewise true when people go around making oaths willy-nilly just all over the place, that they are also devaluing the name of the Lord. And that really, I believe, is, is one of the key issues that James is addressing here, just as it was a key issue that, that Jesus was addressing in the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, James says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So we'll refer back to Matthew 5, chapter, 30, sorry, chapter 5, 33 to 37 that, that, uh, that Dave read for us earlier. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Um, in this passage, here in the Sermon, well, in fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus was doing was he is addressing the false faith of the Pharisees. And he was showing that the Pharisees were, were disregarding and even contradicting the Word of God by the way that they were, were teaching their Jewish tradition. And so if you remember, when I preached on this, I talked about the, the, what's called the Mishnah, which was a very complex system of thousands of individual rules that, that really, not just, didn't really go beyond what God taught, but they actually twisted or disregarded what God taught. And so the Pharisees were, were hiding behind their tradition in order here to, to be dishonest in their dealings. So Jesus quotes their teachers by saying, Again, you have heard it said by those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So although this sounds spiritual, as was so often the case, they only focused on one small part of what the commandment was really teaching. They taught by their tradition that one must never commit perjury or lie under oath when giving testimony in court. And for them, that's where it ended. They did not take that command to, to go beyond the command not to bear false witness. That's the ninth commandment. They did not take it to go beyond the court of law and, and they, were just, they were, would then be free to lie in various areas of their lives. But as it was always the case, when Jesus exposited to them the law of God, he always took it deeper and showed what the heart behind the law really was. And so the Pharisees were also disregarding the law of God by focusing on an external obedience. They weren't focusing on what happens in the heart itself. So the commandment here, the ninth commandment in Exodus 20.16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That means you should never lie ever. Ever. But the ninth commandment wasn't the only one that the Pharisees broke by their tradition. They were also breaking the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And again, many limit this commandment to what I was talking about earlier, about using the name of the Lord as a swear word. 
Now, again, that's part of it. But once again, the truth is far, far greater. Far greater. The, the command to not take the name of the Lord in vain goes beyond just how we use in our speech the name of God or the name of Jesus. In Matthew 23, Jesus pronounced woes on the Pharisees for their, their hypocritical legalism. He said that they, they didn't practice what they preached and that the good deeds that they did, they just did for the applause of men. And then in verse, verses 16 to 22 of Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you blind gods who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Jesus says, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by, by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So by their tradition, the Pharisees were, were trying to get away with making oaths that they didn't have to keep. And so they made oaths all over the place and then broke them just as easily as they had made them. So similarly here in the, the Sermon on the Mount, in, in verses 34 and 30 to 36 of chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not take an oath either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And James here is addressing the same issues. However, this time it wasn't the Pharisees that he was targeting, it was people in the church. Because that teaching, that false teaching that was popularized by the Pharisees had infiltrated the church. So we don't know, maybe it was that the wealthy merchants and landowners were looking for legal loopholes in order to exploit the poor. We don't know exactly what the issue was, but James saw a problem and he was tackling it head on. And you might, you might hear people say in our day, and, and please forgive me for using this reference on Mother's Day, but there's people who swear on their mother's grave. You've heard that maybe? This is exactly the kind of issue that, that James is addressing. He's saying, don't swear. Don't swear for, on anything besides God himself. And similarly, he's saying, don't just make an oath or swear for the sake of swearing. If you're going to swear, it needs to be for something solemn, for a serious occasion. We'll see that shortly. Now, years ago, I had, had made the mistake of, of misapplying this principle. A friend of mine was going to court over a civil matter. And, uh, and so based on these passages, I told him that he really shouldn't make an oath when he went to court. Now, we had a, a small debate about it, but he, he went ahead and did it anyway, and, and I'm really glad that he didn't listen because although my, my advice was well-intended, it was misinformed. You see, I had failed to, to take the biblical context into consideration. 
I'd failed to apply what we referred to as the hermeneutical spiral. The hermen sorry, hermeneutical spiral. Now, there's no test. I'm not going to ask you to pronounce that after the service. But basically, all it's saying is this, that, that when you want to determine what the Word of God says on a particular subject, you don't pull out of one particular verse. That's called proof texting. Okay, you can get one particular verse really to say whatever you want it to say. You have to look at the Word of God in its proper context. So first you look at the verses that are around it and see if they give you any clues that would help you to understand what the passage is really teaching. And then, then you'll go to other subjects, other pastors, sorry, other, um, other teachers on the same subject, other Bible teachers on the same subject. And by there, I mean the guys who wrote the Bible, not the guys who teach the Bible. And then if it doesn't work, as it doesn't here in James, because this, this verse is really kind of hanging on its own, then you, you need to somehow, you need to rely on the passages that are more clear to help you get an understanding of what this passage is actually teaching. And once you've done that, then you go to the, to the wider context of the whole Bible, not just the, the New Testament, but the whole of the Bible. And that's where I had failed. I had, I, had taught, I had taught my friend or spoken to my friend about what James taught and spoken to him about what Jesus taught, but I had failed to consider what the whole Bible taught about making oaths. And in so doing, I had, had caused Scripture to be pitted against Scripture and caused Scripture to, to contradict itself, which, which God's Word never can do. So both James and Jesus here were not saying that you shouldn't make any oaths, but again, that you should not make an oath by anything less than God himself. And that so doing, in, in doing that, it's idolatry. Because you are raising something to the status that is to be reserved for God alone. So the Bible says that, that when you make an oath before the Lord, you are bound to that oath. Leviticus 19.12 you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Numbers 32, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. So Jesus and James are in no way contradicting anything that is taught in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, to teach what the law really taught and to live it out. So in James 5.12, it, it, it does not mean that we should never under any circumstance swear an oath. Godly men throughout the Bible swore oaths on solemn occasions. In Genesis 24, 2 and 3, um, Abraham made his servants swear an oath. In Joshua 6, 26, Joshua laid an oath cursing anyone who rebuilt Jericho. In 1 Samuel 24, 21 and 22, David swore an oath to Saul that he would not destroy Saul's line. In 2 Corinthians eleven thirty one, 31, Paul testifies to his honesty with an oath. 
And in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, he puts the, Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica under an oath to read the letter that he had given them. So these are just a, a few examples. Now, okay, these are not um, prescriptive. They are descriptive. So they're not saying that you, sh you must swear an oath. Rather, they're saying what godly men did in swearing oaths. And so oaths are, were not, in that sense, actually commanded by the Lord, but the Lord himself, the Lord himself did command oaths in, 22, in Exodus 22, 11, and 12, where, where he, he, he called down oaths as part of the civil law of Israel to protect, to protect property. And then in 22, sorry, and then in 521, he commanded an oath in order to expose adultery. And God himself swears oaths in the Bible. The Lord swore to Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan in Genesis 12, 7 and 24, 7. And it's, on, it's in Hebrews uh, 6, 13 and 14, we read, when, a, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying... I will bless and multiply you. So here God is, is applying the pattern that, that we're to follow. God is swearing by himself. And it's, it's on the basis of God's faithfulness that we also are able to swear an oath. But it's also on the basis of God's faithfulness that we are sitting here this morning. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when the Lord passed before Moses, he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And in Deuteronomy 7, 9 and 10, we read, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to the face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. And that promise endures to us today. So if you are sitting here this morning as a Christian, you are here because of God's faithfulness to his promises that have come to you in his Son. And if you are here this morning as a non-Christian, you are also here because of God's faithfulness, because God is slow to anger, and because he is giving you yet one more opportunity to turn away from your sin and to turn to him. So this, this covenant-keeping God, this covenant-keeping God remains faithful to us today, and he will remain faithful to us to the end. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So God is faithful to his promises to Christians. And in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So God is faithful. These are promises that we can stand on. And because we stand in the promises of a God who keeps his promises, we also ought to keep our promises. So James then gives the positive command where he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And again, he is quoting here Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And as you've seen, the Pharisees were trying to hide behind their tradition by treating some oaths as binding and other oaths as not binding. And the liars in James's church were trying to do the same thing. But the name of the Lord was so special. The name of the Lord was so special that they were not just to use it by making rash vows. And when they made those vows, they were to keep those vows in the strength that the Lord provided. But it's not just in the sense of making an oath where you are invoking the name of God, because as Christians, we bear the name of the Lord. If you are a Christian, you bear the name of Christ. And so whenever you say you are going to do something, it should be as though to you that you are invoking the name of the Lord. That's how seriously we are to take our word. And we should really have the reputation with each other and in the world of, as being those who are people of our word. That our word is our bond. So again, the implications of this are that we should not be making oaths lightly because in so doing, we are making ourselves accountable to God. He says, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And the, the word here for, for is, is consistently used in Scripture, the word that we translate condemnation. It's also the word from which we get, get the word crisis. And in Scripture, it's always used in the sense of final judgment, of, of, of being condemned, not just judged and still welcome to heaven, but condemned to hell. Now, all of us do fail to keep our word from time to time, don't we? I've had just recently to, to confess to somebody in this church that I said that I would do something and then didn't get it done on time. We all fail in these ways, but we should not be characterized by this. Because if we are characterized by failing to live up to our word, by failing to do what we say we should do, we should really be examining our heart before the Lord. We should go to the Lord with a heart of repentance. 
So when we say that we're going to do something, if we're looking for a loophole in order to get out of it, if, if we're like the child holding our hand behind our back with our fingers crossed, trying to get out of it, then there's a word for, for you for if you're doing these things. It's, it's liar. So James says that a simple yes or no should suffice. So do people recognize you? Do they recognize you as a man or a woman of your word? Do people say, yes, I, I can trust this individual because they've been faithful? In Colossians 3.17, we read, Whatever we do, whether in word or in deed, we need to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever we say or whatever we do is to be in the name of the Lord for his glory. Because when we fail, we're actually tarnishing the name of God. We're dishonoring God when we, when we fail in these things. So when we fail, we need to confess it to God as sin and also confess it to the person that we've sinned against. Now, it, it can be really difficult to, to, it can be very, very difficult to confess your sin if you've got a pattern of lying. Now, through my, my non-Christian days, um, I wasn't, wasn't a liar, but it wasn't because I was living by a, a higher standard, just because I wasn't a good liar. That, that I was, it was too easy for me to, to, for people to catch me in a lie. I'm one of those people that, that I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, but, but whatever's going on in my heart is going on all over my face. So it's, it's very easy for people to see. And, you know, I had a, had a situation a few years ago uh, when I was, uh, when I had first um, started at, at seminary and uh, I really, I really wouldn't have thought that I, I struggled with fear of man, but, uh, but God was doing a clinic on me in the fear of man. And it seemed like every time I turned around, the Holy Spirit was convicting me for my sin of, of doing or saying things in order to, in order to impress people. And, and I realized that, that if that was going to be the case, unless this issue was repented of, that I would be useless as a pastor. And not only would I be useless as a pastor, but in, in, in my relationships with, with all people, as a Christian, I would be unfruitful because I would be just saying what people wanted to hear. And I would even lie if that's what it took for people to like me. And I remember, I remember like it was yesterday, it was... There was, uh, was a, a couple from, the, from the, the church and from seminary had, uh, had had me over for dinner. And I'd, I'd really just, I think I'd just met her for the first time. And they'd had me over for dinner. She was from, uh, from Australia. And because I'd spent so long there, um, they thought it'd be a nice, nice time to, for us to uh, have dinner together. Now, over the course of the meal, um, something came up in which I exaggerated the truth. And, and I, to be honest, I can't remember uh, what exactly the issue was, but, but I immediately started to feel conviction. And now this was, was, uh, was Louisville in Kentucky in August, so it was very hot, but little beads of sweat started to come out on my forehead. 
And, and it wasn't just because the room was hot. I was feeling very uncomfortable. And so I, with, with, I thought, if I tell these people, I've just met them, if I tell them that I've lied about this, they're going to think I'm a kook and they're never going to want to talk to me again. But thank God, I, I feared God more than, than their response, so I confessed to them. I said, look, please forgive me. I was actually dishonest in, in, in what I'd said to you. But you know what happened? They immediately forgave me, and not only did they forgave, forgive me, but I, I went, I guess, by God's grace, went up in their estimation because they saw how seriously I took the truth. And so they ended up becoming two of my best friends there in seminary, and, and we're, still, we're still close to this day. They're actually about to, uh, about to head to Mozambique as missionaries. But I would encourage you, Maybe the Holy Spirit is convicting you even right now for dishonesty. And I would encourage you, for the glory of God, to make that right. To confess it to the Lord as sin and to confess it to the person to whom you've lied. To turn from the sin of lying and turn to Jesus Christ with a heart of repentance. Now, now for some people, this is going to be really difficult because their, their, their life is, is a web of lies, and they've got lies to protect their lies, and they begin to, to not know where the lies end and where the truth begins. But I would encourage you, by the grace of God, to make this a turning point, to come clean to come clean with God and to come clean with each other for the glory of God. Now, another um, issue, I guess it's true confession time, um, but another area that, that I've really struggled in is, is lateness. And believe it or not, I'm actually a, a lot better than I used to be. But this is another, another issue where it's really the same principle of what James is teaching in chapter five in, in chapter five verse twelve. You see, if if I say that I'm going to be somewhere at such and such a time and I am not there at that time, then I'm not abiding by letting my yes be yes and my no be no. Now emergencies happen, they do, things come up. But, but I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that, that too often I'm characterized more by, by lateness than I am by promptness. And as I said, I, I believe by God's grace I'm growing in this. But what areas in your life do you fail when you say, that you're, say you're going to do something and don't do it, or say you won't do something and then do it? When we fail... Again, we need to treat it as sin, because it is sin. Confess it to God and confess it to the person that we have harmed or, or lied to or sinned to and change. But I, I do want to just uh, spend a few minutes here uh, before we close dealing with some, some of the more formal oaths that, that people make. Some, some of the more formal oaths. Now, of course, Making oaths is really not as common in our culture today as it was during biblical times. 
but, but really there's four key areas in, in which we see oaths regularly in our culture. The first is in the legal system, in business agreements, in church membership, and also in marriage. So first of all, in the legal system. Now again, we've already seen that James was not teaching against all oaths, but, but that we should only make oaths for more serious situations. Now, when, when somebody goes before a judge and they put their hand on a Bible and they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, this is a, a, a typical example. This is an oath. Now, I do find it ironic that, that you'll be trusting that a person who, who's been, um, being uh, accused of a crime would be trusted to, to swear on a Bible as though they've, they've you know, committed this other crime, whether it's, it's murder or, or theft or whatever, and they're going to be trusted to, to keep their word. But, but whenever they do that, even though the legal system, for the most part, looks back on this as some, it's some archaic or throwback to an earlier time, whenever somebody does that, whenever the court system uses the Bible and the name of God, they are harking back to the Lord, and the Lord is getting a, a form of, maybe it's just a nod, but, it, but, but the Lord's name is being glorified in a sense. Now, of course, that, that's foreign to most people's experience. The vast majority of people never go before a judge and have to swear an oath, thank, thank the Lord, but they see it all the time, even on, on television and in movies. So there's there's a weightiness, even though it's it's somehow it's even though it's really disregarded for the most part. There's still a sense of a weightiness that the world even recognizes. Recognizes. But in business partnerships, business partnerships are another way. When you sign your name to a contract, you are making an oath. You're making an oath. I'm, heard, I'm sure you probably heard it said that that people in the world don't like doing business with Christians. That's shameful. It's shameful. And the name of God is blasphemed when that's the testimony that we have in the world. We should be men and women of integrity whose word is our bond. And also, when we, when we, we make an oath or a covenant with with somebody in business, we need to be very, very careful that we're only doing it with a Christian. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 15, we read, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with darkness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, most Christians understand this injunction here to be, um, to be against marrying an unbeliever, and that is certainly the case. God's word is, is commanding us here not to marry an unbeliever, but it's applicable in business as well. Proverbs 11.15 says, Whoever puts up surety for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. So putting up surety for a stranger is, is a form, it's, a, it's a, like a business agreement where you have a contract with somebody else. And the stranger here is an unbeliever. Now recently, a friend of mine in Australia made a, a business partnership with a non-Christian. 
And I encouraged him to really think about that and that he should, should not do it. But again, he went ahead and did it anyway. Now, my friend is, is one of the most honest and dependable people that I know. But now his reputation, as well as Christ's reputation, are being tied with his unbelieving business partner. And I pray that, that this isn't going to come back to bite my friend, but, but I, I fear that it very likely will. The next example is in church covenants. Now, we meet together Sunday by Sunday as Gushigan Fellowship Baptist Church. Now, if you are here as a regular part of this congregation, then you are a part of this church. You don't have to be an official member in order to be a part of what the Lord is doing here. But we do have a formalized membership process. So prospective members will, will meet with church leadership in order to, to, to as best we can, can determine, ascertain whether that person is, is legitimately a believer, have been, have been baptized, and agree with our statement of faith. And then we will bring that person then before the congregation, and the congregation will then affirm this person as being a member of Gushigan Fellowship Baptist Church. And, and it's, it's a way of, of defining who is a part of this church and who isn't. There's all kinds of churches in this city. And there's all kinds of churches in the city that, that I don't want to be a part of. That I don't want to have my name be a part of. I was just had a, had a discussion this morning with an individual as I was walking the dog who is going to a church where the, the, the so-called prosperity gospel is being promoted. I don't want my name associated with that teaching. I want my name to be associated with a church where God's word is upheld. And we don't go beyond God's word. So we have this, this process in place. And again, it, it's not... The, the, the Bible doesn't expressly command that we are to take out church membership. But neither, I would argue, does the Bible expressly command that we are to enter into a marriage covenant either. But it's really the, the, the best way that we have in order to, to identify ourselves as part of this particular church. And, and our church, our leadership, is actually in process of of um, nuancing the membership process in order to really make it clearer that this is a church covenant that we are agreeing with and to make it clearer what our responsibilities to one another are as members of this church. And then finally, the example is of the marriage covenant. Now, the marriage covenant, I, I believe, is, is the most important covenant that we can enter into in this life. So what did you think of, of dear Abby's sick at heart? Do you think that, that she is free to walk away from her so-called loveless marriage? You see, when we make, when we enter into a marriage covenant, 
we are entering into a covenant not only with that person, but we are entering into a covenant with Almighty God. And so to, to break that oath is again demonstrating what we really think of God. Now, there may be people here who have been divorced and who have broken that marriage covenant. Now, the way to deal with that is to repent before the Lord. Not then to, to, to end the marriage that you're currently in, but to deal with it before the Lord. But there's also even people here who would say that they hold the marriage covenant in high regard. And they would cite as proof the fact that they haven't gotten divorced. But the marriage covenant does not begin and end with till death do us part. Your marriage vows probably went something along the lines of to love and to honor and to cherish. That's part of your marriage covenant as well. And so if you, if you are not living that out in your marriage, then you are breaking that covenant every bit as much as you were if you were divorced. So God is calling you to repent of that. This is a very, very serious sin. The marriage covenant is to be a picture of the gospel. God does not divorce his people. God promises to love and to honor and to cherish us. God sent his son to die for our sins. And husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And wives are called to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. When we break this covenant, we are dishonoring God and we are misrepresenting the gospel. And we need to be so careful not to lightly esteem the name of the Lord. Now, maybe the Holy Spirit, I pray that the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart as we talked about these things this morning. And I would encourage you, if that is the case, to immediately, as soon as we finish here, get right with God and get right with each other. Maybe it means confessing to the person that you're sitting next to. Maybe it means picking up the phone. But whatever the case, whatever the case, we need to remember that we bear the name of Christ and we must not take his name in vain. Let's go to the Lord one more time together in prayer.
Our Lord and our God, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. I pray that you will help us to draw on your faithfulness so that we are faithful in all of our relationships. And I ask that you do that by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.